Greetings from Cave, everyone. This is my first week back in Ukraine, and boy, the new cycle didn't wait for me to get settled in at all. Unless you all have been living under a rock the past few days, you've been following news out of Russia of a failed coup of the country's top military leadership. And while all of this was happening, Ukraine's top intel chief said Russia mined the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant and that there's a real chance they might blow it up. More on that shortly. I'm really excited about today's interview guest, Dina Urich. Uh, she works with Helping to Leave. It's an organization that supports Ukrainians uh, escaping from Russian captivity. They have helped upwards of 20,000 people flee Russian-occupied territories and mainland Russia. But first, let's get into this chaos that's happening in Russia. Wagner head Yevgeny Prigozhin staged a failed mutiny of Russia's top military leadership, namely Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu. Vladimir Putin vowed to make Prigozhin pay for his actions. He took over the strategic southern town of Rostov-on-Don for a day, demanding to meet Shoigu. This until a peace deal was struck that sent him to Belarus and pardoned him from criminal prosecution. Part of the deal sending Prigozhin to Belarus included the option for Wagner soldiers to be integrated into the Ministry of Defense, so long as they didn't take part in the attempted mutiny this weekend. This according to the New York Times. But various media reports say that the criminal case against the Wagner head is still ongoing. Russian news outlet Medusa reports that Prigozhin and Kremlin officials attempted to settle this dispute between Wagner and Shoigu, but Prigozhin's demands were vague and strange. Um, he reportedly tried to call Putin directly, but the president didn't want to talk to him. Medusa sources say he probably realized that he had gone too far in the military support that he expected to fall in line with him never materialized. So, he basically accepted a, uh, a Alexander Lukashenko mediated deal. By the, by the way, Lukashenko is the president of Belarus. And this was the brokered uh, agreement that is designed to give Prigozhin uh, refuge in Belarus. The thing about it is that no one knows exactly where Prigozhin is at the moment. And there's no indication that his fighters have been redeployed are broken up in any way. So what does this mean for Ukraine, Russia, and the rest of the world? So the West is really enjoying all of this in a sense because essentially if there's division in your enemy's camp, it's something that you can take advantage of in what ways that remains to be seen. In regards to Ukraine, the main question is how is this helping uh, this country's military efforts in the counteroffensive? The truth of the matter is that no one exactly knows. Um, there really is no indication that any gaps have been left uh, in this aftermath for the Ukrainian military to exploit. And so the Ukrainians have been in their counteroffensive going on the third week. And basically, 
They've been doing shaping operations that essentially are designed to look for weak spots in the Russian uh, um, defenses. And so that's been ongoing and they've been doing that without air support. That's the reason why you've been hearing about those F-16s saying that the Ukrainians desperately need them uh, so that they can um, march on into their offensive a bit more efficiently. So there's no indication that this chaos happening in Russia is impacting the battlefield one way or the other, even though there are marginal gains being made by the Ukrainian military in the South and the East. In regards to Russia, people are asking, and there are a lot of experts who are really smart who are predicting what they think will happen. I think this is a fool's errand. The truth of the matter is that I don't even think Putin or Prigozhin knows what's going to happen. But then you have all these other people who are not in the room who who are very confident in what they think is going to happen. And I'll just close out this segment by saying that, you know, as experts in our various, um, you know, areas that directly or indirectly uh, focus on Russia, we really need to be honest about what we don't know because it really confuses the general audiences out there. There's so many things and so many variables that play at the same time. It could, it could take days, weeks, months, perhaps years for every aspect of the fallout of what's going on, or what went down this weekend to, to materialize in ways that we can see the result. We, we just don't know. Uh, and But I understand it, it's really beneficial for people to to say that they predicted something correctly and they can go on television and have some fancy um, um, broadcast hosts say that, hey, you said this a year ago or six months ago. Again, I think it's a fool's errand, but I understand why people play that game. Moving on, let's get into some news out of Ukraine that's running under the radar, I think. So Kirillo Budanov, the main director at military uh, intelligence chief, told the England-based publication The New Statesman that he is convinced that the Russians have crafted a plan to blow up the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant and is pretty much complete and approved. He said that the threat has never been as great as it is now. Budunov's interview comes a day after Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky published a warning on social media saying that the threat that the power plant could be blown up by the Russians is very real. And here is what he had to say. Well, Chuck, if you put this in perspective, what we've seen is extraordinary. Think about it this way. 16 months ago, Russian forces were on the doorstep of Kyiv in Ukraine, uh, believing they would take the capital in a matter of days and erase the country from, from the map as an independent country. Now, what we've seen is um, Russia having to defend Moscow, its capital, against mercenaries of its own making. Uh, so in and of itself, that's extraordinary. And in so doing, um, we've also seen rise to the surface profound questions about the very premises for this Russian aggression against Ukraine that Prigozhin surfaced very publicly, as well as a direct challenge to, to Putin's authority. So I think we've seen more cracks emerge in the, the Russian facade. It is too soon to tell exactly where they go, 
uh, and, and when they get there. But certainly, uh, we, we have all sorts of new questions that Putin is right. going to have to address in the weeks and months ahead. So, y'all, I'm, I'm going to read from the New Statesman's article um, some details that should really describe the stakes that's involved in, in what's going down. So, Budinov said that the uh, the cooling pond has at the plant, by the way, has been mined by Russian troops. And without cooling, the nuclear reactors could melt in a period of between 10 hours and 14 days. He believes Russia will be able to raise the voltage and the power supply lines to the plant, bringing about a nuclear accident at the lower end of that time frame. And he said that the technical means could be used to speed up the catastrophe. And he also said that Russian troops have moved vehicles charged with explosives to four of the six power units. It's not clear if the International Atomic Energy Agency was granted access to these units during its visit on June 15th. I'm going to venture that they weren't given access. All right. So in short, Budunov said that the plan has been approved. It's just a matter of carrying it, it out. And he said that it could be carried out in a matter of minutes. So, y'all, when I when I um when I got this news, y'all, <laughs> it it it's really interesting. I was heading to the club. You know, I got this on Sunday. So Headed to the club. Can't name the club, but it's a great club. Soldier sent me the message saying, "Yo." Our unit just got this uh, warning and we were told to take care of ourselves, take all the proper precautions. And I was like, um, hmm, should I go back home and just call in the night? But in reality, no one's doing that here. I'm looking out my window right now. People are walking about. They're walking the dogs. They're, they're going about their business. They're on their scooters. All the entertainment, cultural events are still um, on schedule. So there is no panic here at all. The mood is quite chill, quite frankly. So I said, screw it. If the Ukrainians are going out to have a good time, I'm going to have a good time as well. And if we do end up dying, at least I'll go out having a great time. So <laughs> I know that sounds a bit fatalistic for people out there, but I'm just really want to give you the 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 mood and culture was going on here. I mean, it's a real risk, right? But there's no panic here at all. And people really have, um, you know, the threat is real, but people are taking it in stride. All right, next up, my feature interview with Dina Urich head of Department of Temporarily Occupied and Unoccupied Territories and a board member at Helping to Leave. So I just want to explain how dope the work they do really is. Say you're a Ukrainian in Russian captivity and you want to leave. You can be a five-year-old kid, 80-year-old granny, or someone with a serious disability. It really doesn't matter. All you are someone on your behalf has to do is reach out to helping to leave via their Telegram bot and someone will respond to you in Russian, English, or Ukrainian. 
people on the ground, be they taxi drivers, any type of specialist, they're, they're vetted and connected with the person wanting to leave. From there, it could take days or weeks to get the person to safety because of the nature of helping to leave. Work is so sensitive. They can't really go into details about how they help people flee. But the fact that helping to leave exists is just an example of how Ukrainians are organizing to liberate themselves, even if they don't fire a single bullet. Here's Dina Umish. All right, so Dina, you you are with uh, Helping to Leave, and I learned about your organization through a shared friend, and just wanted you to explain to us about you know the work that the work that you do and and who you help. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm personally helping to leave. Uh, I'm head of the department that works uh, for evacuation from temporarily occupied and now deoccupied territories as well. Um, but also we help Ukrainians that were deported to the territory of Russian Federation return back to Ukraine or get to safer places like, for instance, European Union. So a lot of our focus is uh, mainly on evacuation, but also in the last month, we were working a lot on projects for reintegration of deoccupied territories where a lot of infrastructure and services are not available. So we're doing that as well. And yeah. Um, after the 6th of June, with the explosion of the Kahovka Dam, we were working in a very traumatic mode because a lot of things had to be done uh, of huge scale in a very brief uh, time period. And that has been very challenging. But luckily now, after almost three weeks passed, we are more or less uh, being back to our normal routine. Okay, so I, I was going to ask you about how the Kovka Dam explosion impacted your work. And were there people that you were trying to help who, for any, you know, for, for obvious reasons, you know, you, you know, you had to hold back for a couple of weeks until, until things cleared? Yeah, um, in, in general, the situation on the temporarily occupied territories after the explosion was traumatic. I, I believe uh, most of you guys maybe saw that in the news that actually the occupational Russian authorities did not do anything to help people that uh, in the zones that were physically flooded. So people were actually at the roofs of their flooded buildings. And not only did they not help, but they also prevented people from helping each other. So uh, we know about the locals that were trying to bring boats inside, for instance, the town of Oleshki, that was one of the biggest hit by the flood. And they didn't let uh, volunteers from occupied areas, like from the neighboring towns. So this is important that they did not come from the Ukraine control side. It was just local people trying to help each other. They didn't let them enter the town with the boats to save other people. So they physically blocked the exit from that town while it was still possible to exit it on the, you know, by cars when the flood was not that high. And they didn't let people 
help themselves. So that was this was really crazy. And what we did is we teamed up with the local volunteers uh, that were there, like the, the activists, and we helped them because we received so many requests through our Telegram bot or our call center because we are already known for providing evacuation services. Um, and we were like passing them uh, some information on where you can find the people that are most vulnerable. Because when they're moving around the city on the boats, they see people that are on the roofs that are asking for help, you know, that to do this, you have to be pretty active. And if you're a, people, a person with disability or like a pregnant lady or some people with little kids, they cannot even climb out to the roofs. So they cannot ask for help on the spot. So they were like their relatives and themselves, they were trying to call us in our call center. And we were working really hard like day and night creating uh, solutions to pass that information to locals that would in turn use their boats that were already inside the town to to help each other. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't think people really understand what it's like to be kidnapped from your lands, um, taken to another country, or to be in captivity on your land, you know, in, in, in occupied territory. Mm -hmm. So can you just explain what it's like, or, you know, the process of what it means to help someone in either of those cases leave because i know i wouldn't know where to start and i don't um, expect you to break i don't expect you to get into the operating procedure of you know that that would that would disclose mm -hmm. you know how you all work but you know as best you can yeah i mean of course so first of all it's important to note that uh, those uh, kidnappings and captures of civilians on the occupied territories they're absolutely random so it's not like there's some law or some procedure going on it's just people breaking into your house and taking you to a basement and there you can stay an absolutely random amount of time from three days to weeks to months being tortured and held without connection to you know external world so uh, it is very important to say that you cannot ask for help yourself because when you're kept in the basement um, on the occupied territory or later taken to a prison in Russia, you have no connection to anyone. And that is why people that are asking for help, that are, you know, requesting our help, these are usually relatives or neighbors that know the person and that want to help the person that is going through that. So that's for, for, the, for the people who are being kidnapped. And then what we're trying to do is we're trying to get some information from, from the local people, basically, what is going on. And it is vital to just establish the whereabouts, because even the whereabouts of the person can be unknown, because they can be moving a person from one basement to another one. And, and that, is, that is what is happening. And another thing is how they are deporting civilians. So this is not like holding in in a basement or in prison or something like that, but this is forcibly deported people. So for instance, what this was happening with uh, with the flood when people were when, when the flood went down, when the water was already down and there was no no like you know physical danger, they started doing the so-called evacuations where they were actually deporting people, putting them into so-called sanitaries, which are like resort centers and keeping them locked there. So the people could not exit that place where they were taken to, which is claimed to be for their safety. 
um, but they have to stay there for an unknown period of time without documents, without proper humanitarian aid, and most importantly, without information on what is going to happen with them. So we had a number of such cases reported to us, including elderly women and people with disabilities taken to such places. Yeah, so I'm, you know, on your website, you talk about how you work and the first step is you receive requests via a telegram bot, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then you said the operators use, you know, up-to-date databases to answer the questions and the teams have Ukrainian, Russian, and English speakers. And so somebody could just simply have a phone. Um, yeah. For that, yeah. we have a call center as well. So we have a call center where you can call by, you know, mobile connection, but we really encourage using the telegram bot because all the calls can be listened to on the temporarily occupied territories. That is a typical thing. So we encourage to use messengers, uh, just like our telegram bots to, to ask for help. And also a lot of the communication can go once again through relatives because the mobile connection in general there is unstable because it is being blocked by the Russians. So people have to, you know, usually they have to find a spot where you have cell coverage. Usually it's like a high hill or like a, you have to climb a, the last floor of a residential building or some people climb the, climb the trees actually. So what they do is they use those, you know, couple of minutes time to call their relatives by, you know, normal mobile connection to say, hey, I'm alive, I'm fine and so on. And then these relatives, which are already on the Ukraine controlled territory or maybe evacuated to Europe or, you know, in another country, they can write a request to our Telegram bot and give the details about the person that needs to be evacuated. And then... uh, the thing is that you cannot call that person because if you call them, he's going to be out of coverage. So it's that person that has to initiate the phone call. So we communicate with the relative, give them all the details, arrange the stuff. And when once the person calls to their relative, he he's being passed all that information. And also we have a, a, a widespread network of discrete drivers on those, you know, volunteer drivers on those occupied territories that cooperate with us and they call us in the same manner. So in discrete spots when they have uh, the availability, when they're far from the occupied soldiers, they can connect us and then we can give the addresses and pass the information on who has to be evacuated or who has to be, you know, asked where they want to evacuate or not. Because sometimes, uh, like a relative can ask for help, but they don't even know if that person is alive or not. So they say, like for instance, I have an elderly grandma, and ha- I haven't spoken to her in three months. I have no clue. The last address that she was is this address. Could you please check and ask if if she's alive, if she wants to evacuate, if she needs any help, and then we can again post that information to our person on the ground to check. Yeah. And so this all sounds like a very perilous, very, you know, it feels like it'd be a very terrifying experience because you have to you have to navigate these very hostile Russian, you know, occupiers, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is true. And there's a lot of uh, limitations and a lot of bans on movement. Like basically there's no freedom of movement because there are checkpoints everywhere. And at those checkpoints, they not only check your documents, but they check your mobile phone, they check all the chats, 
they can check, they can undress you and look for tattoos because they assume that some tattoos are related to the Ukrainian military and stuff like that. So people have to be very careful and they clear their phone like a thousand times a day because they, they actually check like the last calls and they check the chats and stuff like that. And some those checkpoints are not like, you know, like a border, you know, from the occupied territories to Russia, because that's where the proper, you know, the, the full scale filtration is with the FSB. Um, but in, in between the little towns, like if you want to go from a village to a neighboring village to a market or something, there can be like three checkpoints. And sometimes those checkpoints are installed inside one town and people cannot use their cars and they have to walk around and so on. And everything is chaotic and everything is constantly changing because, and that's one of the, the main limitations. So people are in constant fear because they don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Yeah, you know, and I'm just want to be clear how, many, clear. how many people have you all been able to help escape from occupied territories and from mainland Russia? So from the occupied territories, we evacuated over 17,000 people. Uh, from Russian Federation, around 3,000 people since the beginning of the full-scale invasion. That's only for, for those territories. And of course, we also work on deoccupied after liberation, but that's another story. Yeah, and so so a lot of this is you're, you're sneaking people out and it just sounds like you it, it requires a whole lot of trust and it sounds like from people you you vet them mm-hmm. but also you don't necessarily know them completely am i reading this correctly yeah the idea is that we we never actually met those people that you know uh cooperate with us in the uh temporary occupied territories with those drivers and people who are asking for help also never met us. So it's a whole like very discreet system of, which is based completely on trust. And this is again marvelous because I'm very admired on how Ukrainians help each other in these conditions, you know, and how they cooperate. And this is happening all the time because, for instance, one of the hardest things that we have to do is to get kids to their parents because sometimes... Uh, for instance, a kid went to their grandma or their grandpa uh, before the full-scale invasion, and then the invasion started, so they're separated from their parents. The parents are stuck at the Ukraine-controlled side, and they cannot enter the occupied territories because each person entering there is treated by the Russian. Like, it's a big risk. Each person, in, and person entering there could know something about the Ukrainian military. And this... Even now, this possibility ceased to exist completely. This was possible until mid-December last year. But since then, no one can enter. So no one can exit or enter uh, occupation directly to Ukraine-controlled territories. So anyway, those parents were sometimes, uh, they had a very distant, like, I don't know, a mother of a brother or, you know, or something like that, that... um, is related to the Ukrainian military, which means that you're just a civilian, you have your kids there, but you cannot go because you will be kept taken to the basement. And here um, there's like a semi-legal procedure where the Russian authorities are requesting some powers of attorney for people who would be, you know, accompanying those minors. 
And what we had to do uh, is we had to ask other people, like other mothers with kids that are evacuating, whether they will be agreeing to, you know, take another kid to take them back to their mother. And that's built completely on trust and on their willingness to help reunite another family. And this is magnificent. It truly admires me. Yeah. Like I said, it sounds really like it's a, a terrifying experience from beginning to end because at any moment you could get caught. Mm-hmm. That is true. And for no reason. So there's a lot of uh, Telegram chats where people share their experience, like those that already managed to escape. Uh, they're uh, uh, answering the questions of those who are still trapped there. And they're trying to share their experience as much as possible. And how do you pass the checkpoints? Like, you know, how do, from how do you dress? Where do you look? Don't stare, you know, how do you answer those questions? You know, what to what you can and what you don't like you better not have in your bag and stuff. But this is all, you know, a constantly changing uh, bag of experience that people have to deal with. And I think uncertainty is the mother of that terror that the Russians are like implementing there because people don't know what to expect. And they have to make a decision to flee without being sure about what their way will be, what will be the route, where their kids will be safe, whether they will not be taken away, and so on. So you don't meet most of these people you help because it's a very discreet system. I understand that. But um, are there any psychological services that you um, help uh, direct some of the people that you help get out? Uh, yeah, yeah, of course. Because, yeah. Of, of course, of course. We're offering psychological aid. So now we have an opportunity for that. So we have uh, counselors that can provide help for, for those people once they are already uh, in safety. And a lot of people, you know, are very happy to talk to specialists. And also, I mean, after they return to Ukraine or when they go to European Union, it's not just evacuation. We're not like a taxi. So we take care of those people. We we find them accommodation, whether if they need temporary accommodation or if they need permanent accommodation. We help them in Ukraine. We help them get uh, some cash assistance that they are that they have the right to get from the government and from the international organizations. Because in the occupied territories, they're in the informational vacuum. They don't have any info. They don't. Ha- they don't know what they have the right to when they return. So we provide all that aid. We give them like contacts. Where do you go? How how do you look for that? Here's where you get it. Like, here's your accommodation. And especially we care about, like, we, we, we try to do as much as possible for people with disabilities, with medical conditions, because you need to be, you know, to really find the place that, that suits them for, for, for a proper residence. So we do that as well. Now, I was going to ask you about uh, people who have disabilities, it's a really uh, not commonly told story uh, about Ukraine in general, because mm-hmm. this this country, even before the second uh, invasion, was not really um, handicap compliant in any mm-hmm. circumstances. You can, you can go to train stations here and there are no lifts available in in critical spots when people get off the train so i can only imagine what it's like under these circumstances 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the thing is that before the full-scale invasion, Ukraine was on the on track for, to going from the institutionalized approach to you know more uh, personalized approach, where people get uh, res- uh, support from the social secure from the social care services, like that is more tailored, where a person can be um, accommodated in their own place with just getting regular support. Um, and this was like a transitional period. And then with the full-scale invasion, obviously, that got so much worse. And especially on the occupied territories, there's uh, not enough medical help at all, even for people without a pre-existing disability. So people cannot get, cannot, cannot you know, get any proper help. So, and a lot of them die. So unfortunately, we have a lot of cases where people with diabetes on the occupied territories did not get insulin. And uh, this resulted in a coma and they passed away, unfortunately. Or we have people that acquired gangrene because of that and also died. In the 21st century, people dying from gangrene. This is just heartbreaking. But unfortunately, this actually happens. And this is even from people that turned to us for help. This is not a, a single case. So these are case, and these are just cases that we know of, which means that those people with disabilities, they cannot go out and call, you know, so it has to be someone worried about them outside. And how many of them are there without, you know, any voice to be heard? So, so that's just devastating. Yeah, I can imagine that it's, it speaks personally to you because of, of your own disability and how you've had to live in the world. And I'm sure that because of that, it's made you especially mindful that, you know, that that, that these people um, are often gone, you know, gone voiceless and need help, obviously, as much as anyone else does. Yeah, I mean, that is true. My personal story, of course, helped me and uh, helped me to, you know, be more um, in, in, involved and be more, you know, like immersed in this in these problems where how how the environment has to be, you know, more adapted towards people with different kinds of disability and so on. Um, and it's just... Um, when, we, when we're getting those people out, it's always a... A win you know it's always a success even you know each story when we we managed to get a person uh that was stuck with their disability somewhere like not leaving the apartment for a year and a half you know with all kinds of secondary uh effects and secondary um diseases and then we managed to get them out and we managed to look for proper medical help to be given to them this is this kind of always reminds you what what you're doing this for. So my, my last question to you is, I, I think it takes a particular type of person to do the type of work that you're doing. And I'm curious how you take care of yourself because your full-time job is dealing with the toughest moments of people's lives. And how do you process that so that it doesn't, depress you to the point where you as a human being are not able to be your full happy self 
Yeah, that's a very important thing. And I always remind about it to, to my team, to our amazing colleagues. So we all have psychotherapists. Uh, we all have personal psychotherapists and we have psychological support groups within our organization. And yeah, so um, I'm here just as a representative of a huge team that is working there. And these people are just amazing, devoting, like you said, your, like all of your time to helping others in their hardest moments of life. And we have a certain climate where we try to support each other as much as possible. For instance, uh, when somebody dies, in our case, like you're helping a person and you didn't manage, like you didn't find time, time, a timely response because it was not possible and the person dies. So we always share that moment. Like I'm asking the team to like, you know, you cannot keep it to yourself. You have to say, look, the, the person I was talking to died today. And then we all can share that pain and tell the person that you're not alone with that. It's all of us. So we are all there. And, the, and when a person is evacuated and the relatives send us the happy pictures of, I don't know, a uh, a granddaughter and a grandma, you know, hugging the first time after a year and a half. Um, they send us those pictures and we share those pictures in the group chats with all the team because we have to share that. We have to remember what we're doing this for. So there's a lot of co cooperation, there is a lot of mutual support, there's a lot of empathy towards one another, and that's how you, you know, you manage. So I would like to take this moment to thank my amazing team because, you know, they're the ones that you can wake up in the morning for. Yeah, I, I'm really happy that we are closing out on this note because at the end of the day, you know, you, it, you try to help as many people as you can. And it's clear that some of those um, you, you can't help everyone, unfortunately, but I'm happy that you do have a process in place that, the self-care. Um, and that's something that I'm really big about on my podcast because I always ask people how they're doing. And so I'm happy that you're doing this work and I'm really grateful to your team um, and helping to leave. And thank you for taking time to come on the show today. Thank you so much for speaking to me and uh, letting the world know about what Ukraine is going through. Thank you again. Thank you all for tuning in to this week's episode of Black Diplomats. Please give us a five-star rating on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to us. Also support our work financially on Cash App at cash sign Black Diplomats. Venmo, the handle is at Black Diplomats, and on PayPal at paypal.me backslash Black Diplomats. Thank you all for tuning in and talk to you all next week. Bygones be bygones, the bygones and spray Tired of biting my tongue, I say what I gotta say My, my see the dream is to live free with the brigade But I'm from America, they soon take dreams away Feel like I'm in a mental asylum, I'm silent by hollering I need God and I need guidance Tired of living in the USA, it's too much drama Took off the condom, I'm busting in the truth garden Peep the assignment, a target by the age of three Seen as dogs in these streets, see the bulls out on me Yeah, I'm from America, gotta go get this job Hold on, putting on me up for this fake ass facade like 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 like
biting my tongue, got shit what I gotta say My, my sweetest dream was to live free with the brigade But I'm from America, they soon take dreams away uh, How to channel success while no one's guiding me uh, Trying to live and build wealth while in variety uh, uh, I really need someone to please enlighten me on I'm gon' do this shit while in society uh, I was a prodigal son, lost in desire Didn't speak on a lot, imagination was my fire Ignorant but innocent, so consequences wasn't dire Was a fiend for a dream